I am super excited because we're getting into the book of Zechariah. So you can turn there if you like. It may take you a while to find it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, if you go from Matthew and go backward, that may be the easiest way. You'll find Malachi, you'll find Zechariah. And we'll be in Zechariah for the next several months because it takes a while to get through a series when you have a lot of uh, other things that are happening. Of course, next week is alumni. A month from that is graduation. So, but I do have some blocks of time. That's why I saved that for this time period. And I'm very excited about this book. It is considered one of the minor prophets, minor because of the length of the book. Obviously, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel are major prophets because they're longer. So it's not any less important that it's called minor instead of major. And it is also considered a post-exilic book or after the exile because it is written after the exile. We know the date of the writing. It's 520 BC. So about 500 years before Christ. It's the second year of Darius in which it is written. So a little bit of background this time, which we won't go through every time. Um, Zechariah had a contemporary that also wrote at the same time. Does anybody remember who that is? We had a sermon where we went through the whole book because it's quite short. Haggai, right? The book of Haggai. And so they wrote, actually Haggai's first message was written and then Zechariah message, part of his message was written, then Haggai's second message, and then Zechariah takes over. So they overlapped, and both of their themes were encouragement. There was unfinished business to take care of. Restart it. Um, you know, I'll just use, I'll just use it up here. Okay. <laughs> I shall try that. Anything new? Yeah, you want to restart it all together? I think he's coming down here. We don't, we don't really need that. Honestly, I can get by without it. <clears throat> um, I'll, I may use the slides unless David's coming and running. But back to Zechariah. It is a book of encouragement, and I think we need encouragement now. Amen? Uh, so it's good timing for the book. I talked about unfinished business, of course, this also is a book about us, right? Because it's a book for the remnant back then, but it's a book for the remnant now. Uh, there was only a remnant that came out of Babylon when they were allowed to, to go and rebuild. Only about 50,000 came out. Oh, there it is. Wow, thank you so much. Um, there were about a million potentially in Babylon, um, and the call to come out, 50,000 only came out. So it was just a remnant that came out. These are those that have come out. We too are the remnant, the last day remnant. So this is completely apropos for our time. As you'll see, there are overlaps with Revelation 14. 
there. You'll see next time I preach an overlap with Daniel 2. So two weeks from now, the four kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, right here in the book of Zechariah. Did you know that? Also, you'll see an overlap with Revelation 17 and 18. Uh, what business does a church have getting into commerce or the economy? Uh, we'll see that and the move for a one world order. All that and much more is right here in the book of Zechariah. So it's going to be an exciting study. But maybe what's more exciting than anything is the messianic tone of this book. For a short book, it's probably the most Christ-centered book that the Old Testament has. Mentioning Christ the most, nearly every page is a new revelation, a new theophany, so to speak, or a new Christophany, a new revealing of Christ. And so, exciting book indeed that we start uh, today. And Zechariah had a series of visions all in one night, um, eight or nine, depending on who you, how you break them up. But that must have been quite a night to have all those visions. And we'll be going through those. Uh, we'll go through part of the first one today. So with that explanation, as one author puts it, the visions are not easy of exposition, but flaming with light, singing in hope and resonant in confidence. So sit back and enjoy the ride with me as God takes us through this book of Zechariah. And I've entitled today's, the series is called Unfinished Business, but this particular sermon is called The Repentance of Laodicea. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your holy word and that indeed it is still true, still powerful today. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen as this book is unfolded to us. Take the human instrument out of the way. Give us clarity of understanding. Give us conviction of the Spirit. And may we leave this place with a confession that we are different people than we were when we came. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now that you've found the book of Zechariah, uh, put your finger there, because <laughs> we're going to go to Revelation chapter 3, where our scripture reading was read. And here's the scripture in one sentence. So we're going to Revelation 3 of the King James this morning. But I do this often in sermons, and because I know what happens you know, in the beginning of the sermon, you're kind of there, you know, and you're engaged. And then later on, sometimes... Not so much. Um, and believe me, I've been there. I've been sitting where you sit, so I'm, I'm not uh, condemning anyone, but that does happen. So since you're uh, <clears throat> completely alert right now, I want to give you a couple things that if you don't get anything else, you've gotten something that's, um, that's very encouraging because this is a book of encouragement. God takes care of business. The unseen one sees you. And then this. Above the distractions of the earth, God sits enthroned. All things are open to his divine survey. And from his great and calm eternity, he orders that which providence sees best. Is that good news? It's good news, amen? The faith I live by. 
So God is in charge. He's watching things. He's not an absentee landlord of his earth, right? I mean, he's there. He's watching. He's moving. He's doing it. Maybe underneath. You may not see it. But please believe and have faith that God is there and his faithfulness never fails. So yes, if you don't get anything else, I hope you get that. We'll look more in Zechariah in just a minute, but first to Revelation 3. And maybe, just maybe, let's see. No, that was... Must have gone off before the computer died the first time. So we'll just get that as we go. All right, Revelation 3. And this is to the church of Laodicea. Which church is Laodicea? Which number church? It's the seventh. It's also the last church, right? We're not going back to Philadelphia, the sixth church. We're not going to have an eighth church. Laodicea is the last church, and it will go through, and it will finally repent and receive that which God has offered it. It's as if God stands there and says, I want to give you absolutely everything that you desperately need, but you don't even know you need. That's his offer to Laodicea. Verse 14, and unto the church, unto the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. The word is archi in the Greek. It really may be better translated, the ruler of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will or I am about to spew you out of my mouth. So a very tough experience for God, right? And then pay special attention to the verbs as we look in verse 17. Because you say, right? So there's a profession here that obviously is not only not being lived up to, they don't even know they're not living up to it. Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And, and here's the next verb, knowest not. So they have a pretension that they're not living up to and they don't even know it. You know not that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Not a really pretty picture, is it? And is it any wonder that this Seventh-day Adventist church for many years would say this message belongs to the other churches? (laughs) They didn't want to own it here, but it's us. It's us, and it's here, and it's the message to Laodicea. But it doesn't end with that state. It really ends with very, very good news. And so verse 18 says, I counsel you to buy of me. Again, I want to provide all your deepest needs, God is saying, that you don't even know about. Gold tried in the fire. And so this is faith. The perfect faith of Jesus is being offered to us here. The faith that was truly tried in the fire of affliction and came out perfect, spotless. And so he offers us faith, 
and then white raiment. Of course, that is the righteousness of Christ woven in the loom of heaven without one thread of your or my human devising. It was all of him. So we have faith and we have righteousness. Righteousness by faith. And also anoint your eyes with ISAV. Holy Spirit anointment of discernment. ISAV there. That thou mayest see. So this is what God offers freely to all. It's what we need, but we may not know. Laodicea doesn't know that it even needs it. It doesn't know its condition. If it did, surely it would quickly take these things. And then verse 19, as we're dealing with the repentance today, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, there's about five different words here in this little verse that need further explanation in order for you to really get the gist of what's going on here. He says, as many as I love. Interesting here, the word is phileo, or brotherly love, not agape, as you would think it might be. But as many as I phileo, I. And so that's the next word. So love we've explained. Now the I, the pronoun I is emphatic. And so as many, it's not as many as I love, it's as many as I love. In contrast, right? So this is contrasting God's total faithfulness with man's fickleness of faith, right? God is faithful. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. The I is in the emphatic position. So as many as I love, I rebuke. That's the next word we need to unpack a little. The word rebuke is the same word used, and you can write it down if you like, look it up later, in John 16, 8 of the Holy Spirit, that he would convince or convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So this is rebuke or to convince with sound arguments. I rebuke. I convince. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. As many as I love, I convince and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Two more words to unpack a little bit. The word zealous. Well, we know that means to be earnest, right? To be really into it. But it also has a connotation of a continual state. So not just be zealous, be earnest, but be earnest habitually. Be zealous habitually, therefore, and repent. And then the word repent. Metanoia, which means a change of mind. If there's something in your life, if there's a direction in your life that's not God's direction, God says, turn. Turn from that thing. Turn from that direction. And so we don't have to name the things that it might be in your life or mine. God says, turn. But it's interesting what he says to turn, right? Because if you want to turn your life, the best way to turn your life is to turn right here, right? Because that's where it all starts. So metanoia means a change of mind. And that's what God is calling us to, to repent. That's what he's calling his last day church, to repent, change your life, turn around, align your life with God's direction. 
And so it's a, it's a good message. It's a positive message. <clears throat> it's the Holy Spirit that does the work of convincing. I've shared this once before, but I will share it again because it's a very important point. There are two sources that point to our sins. Anybody remember this? Uh, one is the devil, right? He points to our sins, things that are already under the blood. He loves to dredge things up, doesn't he? He'd be a great uh, worker of these dredges that, you know, dredge the oceans, right? Uh, things that have sunk to the bottom of the ocean, the Bible says, right? He loves to dredge up and say, look at you, you know, you did this at one time. How could, you know, how could you ever consider yourself a Christian? So he loves to dredge it up to discourage us. Now there's another source that points to our sins, however, and that is the Holy Spirit. But he points to our sins in order to take them away and replace them with his righteousness, amen? And with his peace. So it's very important. And now also the Holy Spirit points to things that we don't know about generally, right? So that he might take them away that aren't under the blood, that haven't been confessed and repented of. So repentance is good news. It's a very positive thing. And Romans 2.4 gives us the reason for repentance or one of the main reasons. You know, God does use fear. The book of Jude tells us that, pulling uh, them out with fear, hating even the garment that is spotted by the flesh. But God doesn't want to leave us in a state of fear, right? Right now, everybody is in a state of fear of something, whether it's COVID or the old president or the new president. Or, I mean, you name it, right? We're, we're afraid of all kinds of stuff. God doesn't want that. God wants us to work on a different motivation. And that motivation is love because of the goodness of God. That's what Romans 2.4 says. We can go there just quickly. Romans 2. says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness and his forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. So God is calling us to repent, to change our lives, to put our lives in tune and in line with his direction for our lives. And that, again, that's never a bad thing. God's way is always the best way. The way of the transgressor is hard, the Bible says. It's always better to do it God's way. Oh, how many counseling sessions have I had where young couples will say, you know, we did the, um, we did the baby first and then, you know, kind of continued the relationship and then did the marriage. It really would have been better to do it the other way. We're, we're finding that out now. And I'm like, yeah, God's way really works the best. Amen? All the time. So God is calling us. He's calling Laodicea to repent. And then he gives that amazing promise that if any man hears his voice and opens the door, he will come in and sup with him. And he is standing there at the door knocking. All right, with that being said, now let's go back to Zechariah. Because he also shares a call to repent. And again, it's nothing other than good news all the way around. Zechariah chapter 1. And we go forth now with his call to repent. 
In the eighth month of the second year of Darius came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edu, the prophet, saying, Stop right there. These names have tremendous meaning for the whole book and for our lives today. And so look at what these names mean. Zechariah means God remembers. Berechiah means, or Jehovah remembers. Berechiah means Jehovah blesses. And Edo means at the appointed time. To me, that's amazing. The message that you have just in those three names. God blesses, God remembers, God remembers, and God, bless, and God blesses at the appointed time. You are never alone. God is walking with you. So please be encouraged today from his holy word from these names. Verse two, the Lord has been sore displeased with your fathers or angry with a big anger would maybe be a, a good translation. Therefore, say thou unto them, thus says the Lord of hosts. And we'll stop there again just briefly. We looked at this Yahweh Sabaoth. We read it in that actual, the way it was in the Hebrew when we looked at the book of Haggai 53 times. In this book of Zechariah, you have the Lord of hosts, the God of armies, the God who has all power to do you good. This is the Lord of hosts. Turn to me, says the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, and I will turn to you, says the Lord of hosts. Three times in one verse. The Lord of hosts. And this had an impact on the people because we read down in verse 6 where it says, but my words and my statutes, let's read through verse 4 and onward. Be you not as your fathers unto whom the former prophets cried, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, turn you now from your evil ways and your evil doings, but they did not hear nor pay attention Unto me, says the Lord, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Nope. But something does last forever. And that's what David talked about in the children's story. By the way, there was a more recent find um, to get to this cave. They had to repel to get there. I don't know if you heard about it, but they found fragments of Zechariah in just recently uh, within the last three months, actually. And so the fathers are not around, the prophets are not around, but the word is still around. God's word remains. That's what it says in verse 6. But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did not they take hold of your fathers? And the obvious answer is yes, right? God's word always wins. Saul found that out, right? When he was on the road to Damascus and ready to do damage to God's people, God's word won. If he has to knock us off of a horse, he'll do that. He loves us too much not to do it. He calls us to repent, he calls us to return. Turn your life around, get it in line with the life of God. And of course, he is the only one that can give you the power to do that. It says here in the last part of verse 6, they returned or they repented and said, like as the Lord of hosts, 
thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings, so has he dwelt with us. Now, don't misread what it says back in verse 3, where it says, I will, it says, turn to me and I will turn to you, almost as if he's waiting for us to make the first move. But think about this. Who's the one doing the speaking? He is. <laughs> so he's making the first move. He's already calling, right? He's calling you. Turn to me. Come back home, prodigal. Oh, do I love this quote from Christ's Object Lessons. In his restless youth, the prodigal looked upon his father as stern and severe. How different. How different was his conception of him upon his return? So those who are deceived by Satan look upon God as harsh and exacting. They regard him as watching. He's watching you to denounce and condemn as unwilling to receive the sinner so long as there is a legal excuse to do so. His law they regard as a restriction upon men's happiness, a burdensome yoke from which they are glad to escape. Sound like anybody you know? Hopefully not you. But he whose eyes have been opened by the love of Christ will behold God as full of compassion. He does not appear as tyrannical, relentless being, but as a father longing to embrace his repenting son. The sinner will exclaim with the psalmist, like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. In the parable, there is no taunting, no casting up to the prodigal of his evil course. Didn't bring it up. The son feels the past is forgiven and forgotten, blotted out forever, and it was. And so God says to the sinner, Isaiah 44, 22, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions and as a cloud thy sins. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah 31, 34. And then Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That is the picture of our God. Just waiting, just hoping that we will return, that someone will return. In those days and in that time, says the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought for and there shall be none. And the sins of Judah, and they shall not be found. It's Jeremiah 50 and verse 20. What assurance here of God's willingness to receive the repenting sinner have you, listener, chosen your own way? Have you wandered far from God? 
Have you sought to feast upon the fruits of transgression only to find them turned to ashes upon your lips? And now your substance spent, your life plans thwarted, and your hopes dead. Do you sit alone and desolate? Now that voice which has long been speaking to your heart, but which you would not listen to, comes to you again, clear and distinct. Arise and depart, for this is not your rest, because it is polluted. It shall destroy you, even with a sore destruction, Micah 2.10. Return to your father's house. This is all what Zechariah is saying here. Return to your father's house. He invites you saying, return to me. And get this, this is Isaiah 44, 22. Return to me for I have redeemed you. His redemption came first. Return to me, I've redeemed you. Do not listen to the enemy's suggestion. Don't miss this part. So many people do this. Do not listen to the enemy's suggestion to stay away from Christ until you have made yourself better. How's that going to go for you? Not well, right? You'll never get there. (laughs) You'll never go. Because you'll never be good enough. Do not wait. When Satan points to your filthy garments, repeat the promise of Jesus to him, him that cometh to God he will in no wise cast out. Tell the enemy that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. Make the prayer of David yours. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Arise and go to your father. He will meet you a great way off. If you take even one step toward him in repentance, he will hasten to enfold you in his arms of infinite love. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, says today, turn to me, come back home, and I'll be right there for you where I've always been. I haven't gone anywhere. The rest of these verses give us a tremendous message of hope. And I'm glad I'm doing a series because I can stop anywhere I want (laughs) and start again next week or in two weeks. But just to to, kind of whet your appetite on this, there is then this red horse rider, right? And he's in the bottom He's down in the bottom. He's among the myrtle trees. So get to, get to kind of picture this in your mind, right? A rider on a red horse, and he's, he's, in a, he's in a valley area, a real low area among the myrtle trees. I will put forth to you next week, uh, and some this week, that that is Christ. In your lowest times, Christ is there with you. He's the red horse rider. The myrtle trees were actually they have them out in california it's more of a bush it's a very humble it's not a you know really fancy looking thing a very humble little bush but the myrtle tree when the leaves are crushed it brings forth a sweet smell and so with christ with us even in our darkest moments 
Even when we are being persecuted, Christ will be with us. And he through us can be a sweet savor. Instead of getting bitter at our circumstances, we can actually be sweet with the sweetness of Christ. Amen? I am going to share with you one quote here that was on my presentation to close. Because there are, there are things ahead of us. If, you're, if you don't need this message of encouragement now, just, just hold on to it, okay? <laughs> just save this one. Because where we're headed, this world is, let's be honest, is worse than where we're at now. Um, I'd love to tell you biblically different, but I can't. That's where we're headed. Um, And this statement is an interesting one, and I think we'll close with this. September 30, 1909, the love of Christ for the human family led him to assume human nature and to submit to every test that human beings must bear, that man might be brought into right relation with his maker. He's redeemed you, right? Now return, return to him. Human beings had taken sides with the first great rebel and the angels whom he had deceived. When Satan and his rebel hosts were defeated and cast out of heaven, they did not give up the struggle against right. No way. Still at work. Satan's work has been the same since the days of Adam to the present, and he has pursued it with great success. Now, you should really be tuning in. What what is his work that is so successful? Because you want to not be part of it, right? It says this, he tempts men to do two things, to distrust God's love and to doubt his wisdom. To distrust his love and doubt his wisdom. This is Satan's ploys that he's used with great success. Very interesting. And in the closing work of the rebellion, the rebellion's been going on, but in the closing work of it, The powers of evil will unite in a desperate struggle to work out their deceptive plans to lead souls to ruin. How will they do that? Ministers and physicians and men in positions of trust as lawmakers will unite in this work of rebellion. Did you get that? When I read that, I'm like, wait a minute. I know about ministers. (laughs) I know about lawmakers. What is physicians doing in here? Let me read it again. Ministers and physicians and men in positions of trust as lawmakers will unite in this work of rebellion. Thousands are already taking their place on the side of satanic agencies. Some of these wear a pretentious garb of righteousness but it is only the form of righteousness without the power. Clear light has been permitted to shine upon all, but when Satan's sophistries are heated, when men and women reject light and evidence, gradually they become converted to the theories that Satan offers. Too late, too late. They will see that the angels of God are in the warfare against all who have departed from the faith. 
So this Christ being in this low area with his people, the Israelites realized that they were in a low area. They just didn't realize that God was there with them. Amen? In every trial that you go through, in every trouble, in every temptation, Christ is there with you. Amen? And he is the Lord of hosts. He has all power to do you good. Let's pray as we close. Oh, Father of ours, we are encouraged by your call to repent. And Lord, we probably have some repenting to do. And so please, Holy Spirit, point out in our lives anything that is not giving honor and glory to our God. Lord, we want no part of it. We want only to walk with our dear Savior and to follow in his path. So please give us that gift of repentance that comes through beholding the goodness of God. And Lord, help us to be encouraged as we leave this place. You are in control. There's nothing in our lives that is out of your control. Nothing too big for you to handle. Nothing too small for us to take to you and that you wouldn't care about. You care about it all. And you are the Lord of hosts. We're so grateful that you are our God today. So thank you for your encouragement today and for promising to be with us through thick or thin, through every situation. You are our God. We thank you and we love you in Jesus' name.